0: My name is Angela Cox, and I am the Mindset Mentor. And this is the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. Now, my aim is to discover and share the secrets of success. You'll hear engaging and uplifting interviews with business leaders at the top of their game, all primed to deliver bucketfuls of value and inspiration. We'll bring practical tips success strategies and golden nuggets of motivation to help you unleash your absolute potential now please do like share and leave a review if you love this podcast it really does help others to find us thanks for listening and let's jump in now and meet this week's fabulous guest My guest today is Dean Noble. Now, Dean is a cybersecurity professional and he's got years of experience. And we first met about 14 years ago when we were thrust into the same cohort on a leadership development program at Sandhurst. So we had a year of lots of fun and I'm really looking forward to catching up with him and seeing what he's been up to in the time that I have not seen him for. Dean! It's an absolute pleasure to see you again this morning. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well. Thank you, Angela. And it's a pleasure to see you as well and, and looking so well. So, oh, uh,
0: thank you very much. Uh,
1: and I can't believe it's been 14 years when you say that. That has absolutely flown by. So, Hasn't it? Uh, Just
0: I worked it out this morning. And I was like, no way, 14 years and you haven't changed a bit.
1: I can say the same for you. (laughs)
0: What is that all about? Now, I'm looking at you now and and the listeners can't see this, but you have a mountain range behind you on your Zoom screen. What's the mountain range all about? Because it looks amazing.
1: It was Mount Cook. So I was out in New Zealand earlier this year on a fabulous trip. I can highly recommend it, especially Mm -hmm. if you enjoy driving, because there are only 6 million people that live in New Zealand and it's bigger than the UK. And we have 66 million. So the roads are quiet. It's absolutely beautiful. So we were driving around in a very large camper van, which was very nice. And we pulled up on the edge of a lake. I can't remember the name of it now because they have unusual names. But it was this kind of crystal blue color of the residue that comes off the mountains from the glaciers as it comes down. So it creates this kind of blue color. And it was spectacular. And I, I took a picture of the mountain range at the back of it. So that was our view for the evening as the sun went down, which was quite oh, nice, I have to say.
0: It sounds absolutely amazing. And it definitely looks it. You, I mean, you, you, I know that you do lots of traveling. So I'm hoping we'll be able to talk about that a little bit on the podcast. But for now, what I want you to do is to get into the spirit of being your own cheerleader. So I'm a big believer that we should shake our pom-poms. And I always ask guests to share their three proudest moments. So I'd love to hear yours. And I think I can guess what one of them is going to be, but let's see.
1: I have to say probably a tough question for me because I think I have many, many, many proud moments. And that's partly because between my wife and I, we have five children. Gosh. So, gosh. And your children make you proud every single day. So... You know, some of my children, well, I think they're all blessed, but some are more intellectual than others and others are more athletic than others. So, and it's when they're overcoming challenges that they faced. You know, so Charlie is dyslexic, is, you know, struggles at school academically, you know, was written off pretty much by the teachers. But we work very, very hard with, uh, with lots of extra tuition, lots of support. You know, so when she got a C grade in, a, in her English language, that was kind of an amazing wow. moment for us because, you know, she, she was ripped off. She was never going to pass English, you know, and as a dyslexic, that was a huge achievement. So, you know, I mean, the other girls all come away with A's and A stars, you know, and you think you'd be more proud. No, it was Charlie's achievement. So overcoming that adversity, you know, it, it is absolutely amazing. And it's quite funny because Charlie gives me many of my proudest moments and she's my stepdaughter and my wife. She went on to join the military, which Mm -hmm. obviously, again, you know, having you and I spent some time at Sandhurst, you know, you can imagine what an amazing place that is. So she went off to kind of military college and stood there when she was doing a passing out parade. Again, a little tear (laughs) runs down her face. So those moments I pick out because all of that's been really, really tough for her. The other girls, I'm proud of them, but it comes much easier to them. Yes. You know, uh, you know, Amy's very gifted. You know, she's had work published as a, uh, you know, for things she's written. Wow.
0: Uh, how old is
1: she? I think she was 13, 14 when that happened. It was this kind of school driven thing. But, you know, her work was put on the front of the book that was published, to, you know, giving an occasion how good it was. So it's incredibly talented. So, you know, achieved a black belt in karate at about the age of 14. So I could go on. And, oh, on and you're on. a I proud board. dad all around the children that make you proud, incredibly proud. Personally, I don't think I have many proud moments because i always set myself huge goals to achieve. And although I think I do reasonably well, I always think I can do better. And that's kind of a challenge then that it creates for me that if I think I can do better, it's hard to be proud of what you've achieved. So I'm very lucky. I have a fantastic wife, Nicola, or Nick for short, who sort of reminds me what my achievements are and then allows me to kind of be proud because without her, I just keep pushing and pushing. You keep and going
0: pushing. on to the next. Yeah. And
1: don't actually stop, I don't think. So it, it's tough because yeah, when you're driven in, uh, to succeed and push yourself constantly, it's often hard to stop and take stock of what you have actually achieved. Yeah. So my pride comes from my children and what they achieve.
0: That's lovely. That's lovely. And you are relentless. I remember that from our time at Sandhurst and that project that we had to do over that 12 months. You very much were the driver of it. But you haven't mentioned the thing I thought you would mention. So I'm going to mention it for you because you're being humble here, I know. But the Iron Man, tell us about that.
1: So it, it's like many things. Everything I do, I strive to be the best that I can be at doing that. So I'm not a natural athlete by any stretch of the imagination. Someone convinced me that I should take up triathlon. I was looking for a new sport because of injuries from football and squash. I couldn't continue to do those. And actually running and swimming and cycling seemed like quite a healthy thing to do. So and I've always been active, always been sporty. So you start off with doing a bit of training and you do the first event, which is what we call a sprint, okay, which is relatively short. It's just, most people it seem quite long. But once you've done an Ironman, you realise how short a sprint is. <laughs> so you have to swim around about 500 metres. I thought, yep, I can do that. Get out of the water, cycle for about 20 kilometres. Yeah, that's not too bad. And then run for around about five kilometres. And if you think park runs are 5k, most people yeah. can do those. So you put all that together. It's quite tough. And when you do that first training, you achieve that. Once I did it, I got the bug. And we're back to the, okay, I've done a triathlon now. What's the pinnacle of that sport? Well, actually, it's to do an Ironman. So I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. Because otherwise, if people say, what do you do? I do triathlons. Everyone will say, have you done an Ironman? It's a bit like when you do martial arts. Have you got a black belt? No. <laughs> no, failed. So... I decided I was going to do it, so year two, you step up, you do Olympic distance, so you swim a mile, you cycle 40k, you run 10k, so that could take an hour and a half or so, so you can imagine that's kind of quite tough. You then move on to what we call a half-distance Ironman, so you how fast that when you swim around about a mile and a half, I think it's it was then cycled around about 90 kilometers and then you run a half marathon. Now I didn't train hard enough for that when I did it and really really struggled and this is where you come to start to see sort of the underbelly of my personality so I'm in absolute agony on the bike because I hadn't trained hard enough I hadn't done enough hills it was a much hillier course than I'd anticipated so I'm in pain on the bike and I was glad to get off and looking forward to running a half marathon. <laughs> so, you weirdo. <laughs> the challenge with half marathon, again, it, this was down near Portland Island, down in, I think it's on that coast, Dorset coast, I come in Weymouth possibly. And it, you run up to the prison that used to be there, or still, I don't think it's there anymore, but at the top. And so my Achilles were damaged very, very quickly because I hadn't trained enough for it. So I was probably going slower towards the end, the last 10K, than an old person on a Zimmer frame. I was that slow. I was close to crawling because it was that painful. I think I came in last on that event.
0: You're not going to like coming last, are you?
1: Oh, no, no. I wasn't last. I was certainly in the last few. But I was never going to give up. No matter how much pain I was in and how many problems I was having on that, I was never going to stop. And I didn't. I finished it. So I went away and took stock from that. And I thought that wasn't clever. I had to heal the injuries. I had to have lots of physio to get the scar tissue out of my Achilles and stuff mm. and the damage that I'd done there. And I took stock and I thought, right, I'm going to, have to start again and start retraining. So I trained, first of all, for a marathon. I ran the London Marathon. So I knew I could run a marathon now. And, and, and I kept that training up. I then started doing sportives, where you cycle 100 miles, 120 miles did lots of really, really tough events up in the Lake District where all the big hills are, so I could do that. I then started swimming, so I could swim five or six kilometers in the water, in open water, in the ocean and everything. And then I put that all together and went and did the UK Ironman in 2015. And that was just sheer determination to, A, not be defeated by the half Ironman that had beaten me, but well, almost beat me. It didn't beat me. I finished it, but it was close to beating me. And my objective, I was never going to win it. You know, the elite athletes do it in about eight hours. It took me around about 13 hours to do it. Which is incredible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just to be going for 13 hours is tough enough. And to run a marathon after cycling 180 kilometers and swimming four kilometers Mm. takes some doing. So, yeah, from a personal perspective, when I look back, I was hugely proud of achieving that. And it was a goal I set out and kept going. I mean, the training is relentless. But again, I mentioned Nicola earlier. You know, I had to sit down with Nick when I decided to sign up for it in, I think, the July of the year before, 2014. I said, right, you know, I will start training in January because you do it in July 2015, and it will consume my life. Yes. You train every single day, twice Mm -hmm. a day. Get up in the morning, go out and run 10K, go to work for the day, come home in the evening, and swim 4K in in, Uh the local reservoir or wherever. And she was supportive of that you know, making sure my food was ready when I needed it, that I got enough sleep. She's a superstar. It was an absolute, and you can't do it on your own. And and I suppose that's the one thing that you really, really learn is that you're more successful when you've got someone to support you on that journey. And and that was how I achieved that. Because, you know, those wet, dreary mornings, I'm looking out the window and I've got to go and ride my bike. Do I really want to? And she knew that I would be disappointed in myself if I didn't and she would kick me out the door. Now, if that was a good thing or a bad thing and why she was kick <laughs> me out, but it was what helped me succeed in achieving that Ironman and, and that drive. So the problem is you do that and you start looking at the ultras where you do two or three in yes. a row. So I swiftly got told that wasn't going to happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've had enough support, that's it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because, yeah, I just keep going and going and take it to the extreme, the next extreme, the next extreme but it is an addictive sport.
0: I do remember reading your story of, I think you probably wrote it a couple of days after the event. And I remember reading that and, and sort of feeling like every single step you were taking because you made it so articulate and so real. And one of the things I'm interested in today, because obviously this is a lot about mindset is when you're in that situation and you're pushing yourself for all of those hours and you're in pain and you know, it's hard. And people are getting ahead of you and all of this stuff. How do you speak to yourself to keep yourself going? You know, what is it that epitomizes the determination, I suppose?
1: It's fear of failure for me. It's simple as that. Particularly on events like that. I think that's the number one driver for me to not succeed. And that fear of failure is driven by, you know, I'm a as you know, a people person. So What I do to ensure that I complete my goals is I tell people what my goals are. So you share your goals. And that then means I have to do it because I cannot face those people and make excuses as to why I didn't do it. It's not in my nature. I'm not an excuse person. Mm -hmm. So if I get something wrong, if I make a mistake, and, and you have to be willing to make mistakes and take the chances to do that, or you won't succeed, you've also got to be able to say I got that wrong. I made a mistake. I couldn't do it, you know. And that, that, when we come back to the half Ironman, I had to sit down and look at the mistakes that I made. You know, I was overconfident. I didn't train hard enough. I thought I was fitter than I was. I hadn't wrecked the course and understood the difference between mm-hmm. the flat cycling that I've been doing and the hilly cycling I needed to do. And on and on you go kind of thing. So it's about recognising that. And it is that fear of failing and having to explain to people that I wasn't good enough. I didn't train hard enough. I let myself down because I'm honest and I can't lie and make excuses that aren't true. So I have to just... There's no
0: spin in Dean Noble, is there?
1: No. No spin. (laughs) I'm not a politician. But
0: But I can really understand this idea of accountability to other people. It's something that I do personally as well. And, And it really works as a strategy for those of us that don't like to fail. So completely get that. Now, obviously you work in cybersecurity and it would be remiss of us not to talk about your career a little bit because you and I were together in Lloyds Banking Group back in the day. What's happened since then in your career?
1: I can't remember all the dates, but I don't think they're overly relevant. But um, after five years or so in cybersecurity for Lloyds, and they were a fantastic company, excellent training, you know, I think you and I are doing the things we did today because of that organization. Very it's, much so. I realized my worth in the marketplace. You know, I was seeing other cyber professionals come into the bank earning more than me and was talking to them and understanding on the careers they'd been on and how they'd got where they'd got to. And that's one of the things I always do. Whatever job I take on, I talk to the successful people and find out what it was they did. Why were Great. they successful and what can I do? What can I do to emulate that? Well, I did that from the very early days of my career. So back in 1987, when I joined what was TSB before it became Lloyd's, you know, I sat down with the manager and the assistant manager and the supervisors and worked out what they did to get where they were. And actually, none of them got there quick enough. So I worked harder and faster. I don't, is it arrogance? Is it, I don't know. When I go into an organization, I look at the boss. I look at them and think, I can do that. And then it's, how do I do that? Yeah. So I, I realized my market value outside of Lloyd's that I would always be restricted as you are in any large organization by the annual pay rises of the 3% they're going to share out amongst the people who are deemed successful or not successful that year based on their performance scorecard. And you realize the restrictions of that type of organisation, and, and you know, yes, I'm good with people, and and you know, I was always good with the bosses, so they would always give me good pay rises and nice bonuses. But I was still at their beck and call, and I didn't like that. So I essentially waited for voluntary redundancy. We kept getting coming up. Eventually, I was in the right position at the right time. I think when we merged with the other bank after the banking recession, coming with H. Boss, I think it was. Halifax yes. Bank of yes. Scotland. And we all had to apply for our jobs, which was perfect. So I just put a really bad application in, (laughs) (laughs) got the phone call and said, we're really sorry to have to tell you, Dean, that you've not been successful. It was a little cheer. Um, Pum-pum's out, out. (laughs) yep. (laughs) Two years salary in the bank kind of thing, you know, and I was set up at that point there. I think I finished on the Friday. On the Monday morning, I was sat in my office thinking, oh, have I done the right thing? I'm unemployed. A little bit nervous. And my old boss rang me up and said, are you free now? Can you come and work for me?
0: Oh, wow.
1: So, you know, I said, oh, I wanted a bit of time off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a few days, that's so, it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I had, a, while we sorted out the contract and got everything in place, within a month, I was up in Newcastle working for what was left of Northern Rock after the uh, recession mm-hmm. and doing their security for them. And Never look back after that. But, I mean, I've gone from being self-employed, contracting. So I, I headed up security for Northern Rock when I went up there. Again, got a bit fed up with being away from home because I was living in Newcastle during the week. So I moved back to home and just picked up a contract and co-op. Although it was just a basic consulting role, they very quickly realized, you know, what I was capable of. So I yeah. was kind of coaching and mentoring my bosses essentially because they were sort of younger and less experienced so it was nice for them to have me on board so I helped them through they appreciated it they looked after me from there went to KPMG they wanted me to help them build their northern practice so I did some of that with them for a while looked at the future there because there was lots of opportunity there another fantastic organization to work for I have to say I went in as a senior manager, my next natural step would have been to director and then partner. And while the money is great, you kinda realize that the work ethic there and the politics there require a huge investment of time. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. over and above what I was prepared to give. Because as I said earlier, you know, I've got five children. And a great wife who I enjoy spending time with. I've just spent six months with her, you know, 24 7, and we've had a fantastic time. And that says a lot, really. So being away and working and putting in the effort, I mean, I was up to sometimes two o'clock in the morning to get a bid in yeah. to, to win work. I remember those uh, days. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was tough. And, and I mean, as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't want to give up that much of my life yeah. to an organization. So I went to. Co-op bank, headed up their security for a couple of years back with a friend again, usual thing. Are you free? Can you come and work for me? Which is where most of my work comes from, yeah. which is good. That means you're doing something right if people want to re-employ you on a regular basis. Had a fantastic time there for a couple of years. Again, another lovely company to work for. They've had some tough times, but their culture is very nice. It's a very caring organisation. And then went back contracting again, headed up security for Co-op Insurance. Got invited out to Denmark with another friend that went out there to run security for RSA Scandinavia, Royal Sun Alliance, as you know it, or for yeah. Forsikring in Danish is what it's called. And that was an amazing experience that was. So I moved out there and they were a great company because they paid for me to live in this beautiful apartment hotel overlooking one of the canals, which was within walking and cycling distance from the office in Copenhagen. And if you know the Danish and you know Copenhagen, it's a bit like Holland with all the cycling. So cyclists have priority everywhere. So you have to get yourself a bike. There are a few cars on the roads and they're frowned upon. So you cycle everywhere. And it was fantastic. What a beautiful, beautiful place to live and work. Thoroughly enjoyed that did that. So, we, but again, it meant me being away from my wife and my family. So I used to fly them out at weekends. So they'd oh, come out nice. and spend the weekend to, to see Denmark, take them out all the time while we were there. Sometimes my wife would come and stay there with me with children and, and dogs and stuff like that home. We had to make sure we we're at home as well. So, but we made it work. That was fantastic. Came back to the UK. Did some work for University of Nottingham. That was really interesting. A different culture again (laughs) altogether. Oh, yeah, in education,
0: Um, yeah.
1: In in education, absolutely, Mm. but really enjoyed that. And then ended up at HSBC for the last couple of years, which was, as I was saying before we came on air, they're a global company. They operate in 70 countries. They employ about a quarter of a million people, Mm. I think, something like that, bigger than some countries. And we were building new operation centers for them in Mexico, in India, in Poland. I was working with the Swiss, the Germans, Hong Kong, and they sent me all over the world to do all the work I needed to do for them. And and that was amazing as well. And as I've said to you before, I encouraged my wife to give up work so she could travel with me. So while we were in these places, we were able to sort of, you know, do a week's work. And then at the weekend, we'll go and see the Taj Mahal while we're in India. Or, you know, the big Buddha while we're in Hong Kong or you know, you know, I didn't take her to Mexico because my experience there wasn't great. I got a sort of bit of international tummy trouble.
0: Oh dear.
1: <laughs> so I won't go into detail, but that put me off Mexico a little bit. That was my own fault, not anyone's out there. So uh, not paying attention to the ice. Yeah, uh, <laughs> going in my pocket.
0: <laughs> but I mean <laughs> it sounds like your work in life has just been fabulous in terms of all the wonderful places that you've been able to visit and bring in your relationship into that as well, like win-win. But I guess what I'm interested to understand is, you know, Dean on a piece of paper looks, you just look to have one of the happiest lives, you know, anyone could ever have. What about adversity? You've mentioned adversity through, you know, your daughter. Have you ever experienced any? And and if you have, how has that shaped you?
1: Has it shaped me? Yes, it has shaped me. So the first probably real adversity that I experienced was with my first daughter Emily, at the age of two, contracted E. coli. Oh God! So I was in the children's hospital in I think Pendlebury in Manchester, and the doctor took us to one side and, and explained that you know my two-year-old may not make it through the night. So that was a really, as you can imagine, that was a tough night. She got through that, recovered. I remember being in the cloakroom decorating some weeks later and contemplating my life as it was. And I was a bank manager at the time. It was before I went into cybersecurity. So I was the first in the office in the morning. I was last out at night. I was the usual sort of I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic, but <laughs> I worked very, very hard to be the best that I can be at what I do. And Because I can't just do the minimum, I have to understand everything from end to end. Why do we do the things we do and how does that work? It requires a lot of extra effort, you know, and I would take a notepad to bed because I'd be thinking about work and I'd have to wake up, if it was on my mind, I'd have to wake up and write it down and stuff like that, which meant that that took priority over my family at that point in life. And that had to change. And it was that moment, that I said, I remember in the downstairs toilet, cloakroom, whatever you want to call it, painting the walls, thinking this through, thinking, I've got to change. I'd always been very good with technology. I could build a PC, strip one down, put it back together. So I went back to college and studied IT. Was very lucky, as I said, Lloyds was a fantastic company. I was able to move sideways at the grade I was at, keep my salary, keep my car. And going to a technology job, they wanted all my management skills that I'd learned with you, you know, in Sandhurst. Uh, they wanted that in the technology division. They wanted my understanding of the business that they served because most people in technology understood computers but didn't have yeah. a clue what a check account was or, or a savings account or a mortgage or a life policy or whatever. So I was able to take those skills and that management experience and, and that knowledge of the environment and the business that we serve, and they trained me in cybersecurity, and that was a fantastic relationship that benefited them and benefited me in the long run where I'm hit where I am today and I've had the opportunities that I've had as a result of that and that was determined by that event of that adversity and I suppose that's what it says about me if we're talking about you know self-analysis here is that I could have just stayed in the job that I was doing and, and sort of decided I wouldn't go any further and just do the bare minimum and not have been happy. Yes. But my happiness in the biggest, what is often the biggest part of your life when you work, was important to me. So I went and found something that made me happy. I knew it was always there. I just didn't realize that it was what would make me happy and I hadn't worked that out. And I worked it out and I was able to do that. And now every Monday morning, not every Monday, but on a Monday morning when I wake up, I've got to look forward to going into work. If I don't, it's the beauty of being a contractor that I can say, actually, I'm not enjoying this. I can go and speak to the boss and say, this is not working. And two weeks later, I can be in another job or we can change something to make it work. It's harder to do that when you're pigeonholed into a role in a large organisation. You know, these days, in fact, because of what I do is so specialized, most of the people that employ me don't even know what my job should look like. They bring me in to define define what what the job Mm -hmm. should look like. And therefore, I get to do what I want to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, they say that good things happen to good people, and you are cushy. That's the word I'm going to use for you. Just brilliant, isn't it, your life?
1: I am very, very fortunate, but you have to keep taking stock because you will drift back into bad habits. And I do it regularly. Okay, so the other adversity that comes along regularly, I suppose, which is what I, when, when I saw the question and I thought it through, it is either near death, which is where we were with Emily, mm. or actual death, because, you know, I'm 52 now. So when you start hitting your sort of mid 40s, something starts to happen, you start to lose family members, friends Mm. suddenly pop off. You don't see that in your 30s, or you're very unlucky if you do, um, because you're all fit and strong and healthy, and you suddenly realise your mortality and that you're not going to be here forever. And you start to assess, am I enjoying what I do when I get up on a Monday morning? But also, you know, There's that film, The Bucket List. So, you know, and I have a bucket list. Have I done all the things I want to do? If I die tomorrow, and it's a bit morbid, but it's a reality, or something bad happens, am I satisfied with what I've done in my life? Now, that could be altruistic things. Have I helped enough people? Am I proud of what I've achieved? You know, or have I just done the adventures I wanted to do? The travel was all part of that. Going to New Zealand was part of that. Going to Australia in the past was part of that. You know, I had a fantastic bucket list. I wanted to dive on the Great Barrier Reef. I have. Tick. I grew up where Bondi Beach was where everyone surfed. I wanted to surf on Bondi Beach. So I learned to surf. I went to Bondi and I surfed. It was a bit naff, actually. and It was full (laughs) of jellyfish. (laughs) But I ticked it off my list. But you did it. Yeah, and and that's what I keep doing. I keep stopping. And it takes, unfortunately, sad events, whether it's my father passing away. You know, a month after I did the Ironman, I was hit by a car, unfortunately, my own fault. Gosh. Uh, So, you know, woke up in hospital, having been knocked unconscious, tibia snapped in two. Wow. Smashed up a little bit. And you can sit there, you know, I mean, when you get to Ironman level, you're very close to being an elite athlete. Okay, and put that in perspective, my heart rate was probably 41 beats per minute at rest. You know, I could go out and run a marathon, cycle 180 kilometers, and and I could swim 5K for fun. So to suddenly be in hospital bed... Drive you mad. So I need goals. And, And again, we talked about earlier about telling people. So I got my wife to bring my iPad in. I went online and thought, right, I need a triathlon or something to target. So I signed up for... Escape from Alcatraz, okay? I've read about it in the past. It was something I wanted to do. It's a triathlon you can do in San Francisco where a boat takes you out to the island of Alcatraz. You dive off. You swim back through shark-infested waters in the strong currents. (laughs) It can sweep you out to the Atlantic ocean. You get to land. You run to your bike. You get on your bike. You cycle around the hills and the parks of San Francisco for about, I think it was about 35K or something like that. And then you get off and you run a. 10k race across multiple terrains on beaches and up sand dunes and stuff like that it's quite an interesting race and the weather's beautiful so
0: had you had a knock on the head as well as breaking
1: (laughs) you know these bones I mean come on we're not not unconscious so but what that does for me and and then I tell everyone I've done it and and publish it that I now have to do it so you know I I mean the surgeon was you want to do what (laughs) yeah Yeah, definitely Having that enabled me to train again and, and, and achieve it. I mean, they had to take the pins out of my leg eventually because I, they, they were causing me problems because I was still running on them. So it's that adversity that when those things happen, you can either sit there and feel sorry for yourself, but I'm not a victim. Okay? No, I am not, not at all. Person.
0: You're a uh, bounce forward okay. kind of guy.
1: Yeah. If you put a challenge in front of me, actually I will go out my way to get around that challenge. It's simple as that, you know. I think, again, when I've been thinking this through, you know, I remember someone invited me along to a judo session when I was 10 or 11, 11, I think, and I spent an hour getting beat up. (laughs) But I was so impressed with the people that were were able to beat me up. I I wanted to go back and be as good as they were. (laughs) most people would have walked away so you know three to four years later I was the club champion you know and and no one could beat me up anymore
0: so there is this theme isn't there that's emerging of I I get a few things you making the most of every minute you kind of set in I mean you before you said other people could put a challenge in front of you but actually you put the biggest challenges in front of you and then this idea of of wanting to be the best at everything that you do and and striving until you reach the pinnacle of that. I mean, it's just, it's so inspirational to hear it.
1: I want to be the best I can be. So that in itself causes problems because you always believe you can be better. So, you know, if you want to be the best, there's a limit to that because once I beat everyone else, I'm the best. So and, (laughs) and it becomes boring.
0: It never
1: stops. <laughs> and you have to understand your limitations. As I said, with, with the triathlon, you know, when I took it up, I was probably, I don't know, late 30s or early 40s. I can't remember now. So, you know, I'm not going to win that. You know, look at the Brownlee mm. brothers in their 20s kind of thing, you know, Olympic champions. So, you know, I'm not going to beat the Brownlee brothers. There's no two ways about that. So you have to set your own limits. But that's one of the nice things about triathlon is, is you, you go out and do your first event and it might take you an hour or whatever it happens to be. So now you've set your baseline. So now you target, your swim to get faster, you yeah. target, cycle to get faster. And that's a, it's about self-improvement. And it's the same at work. In order to do my job and to get employed, there are certain qualifications you're expected to have. Things like CISSP, CISM and a few others. And those require you to do continued professional development. Probably same in your industry and yep. in the other industry as well. Otherwise, you could stagnate. But I actually quite like that. I don't need someone to tell me that I need 40 hours of CPD in order to sort of maintain a qualification. I would get bored if I wasn't learning, of course
0: you, would, yeah.
1: you know, so I probably almost every year do a new qualification for something just because I can. And also because in my industry, things move so fast. It's one of the reasons I love it. I get bored very, very quickly. I learn very quickly. And then, as I said, once I'm good at something, I think, okay, well, what's next? What else can I do? And how can I get better again? And you know, it it keeps me my mind active and keeps me interested in what I do. If you're bored in your job, take up security because it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, we're we're dealing with cyber criminals, Mm -hmm. organised crime, nation states. You know, you name it, we're under attack, and that's what I'm defending against. So that's quite good fun
0: i have read it is, and thank goodness for you. Now, I can't believe we're near the end already because it's just gone in a flash, and I've not even asked you half the questions. But you've kind of answered them along the way. You will have answered this one as well, but I want you to do it in a nice, succinct manner so that we can kind of finish off on something that people can take away. So, our killer question is always: What is the secret of success in your view?
1: Secret of success? Do you know what it was? It's been for me. Is my wife, and I mean that generally because, and and I don't want to be critical of of my ex-wife, but how how can I put it? She wasn't always supportive. So although I was still successful, it was despite my wife. So that was just another challenge to overcome, and and that's not her fault. You know, we we didn't make the right. You know, we, we probably weren't the right choice for each other. You know, and that proved difficult you know, we have between us three beautiful children and, and you know, and, and as I said, give me many proud moments. Nick's fantastic because she's so supportive. So, you know, although, you know, she's frustrated when I'm traveling, she's still making sure that all my suits and shirts are ready for me on Sunday night before I go and, and that, you know, I'm happy and that, you know, she organizes our personal life so I don't have to worry about it and, you know, everything's as it should be for me. You know, it makes my home life easy because, as you know, when we talk about work-life balance, you know, if you've got stress at work, you can cope with it if you've got a nice home life.
0: Yeah.
1: If you have stress at home as well, you're on a very negative spiral because you've got nowhere to turn. You know, that's when you end up in the pub or somewhere else with other problems.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And
1: having that support at home has been fantastic because that was when I was able to leave Lloyd's and go self employed, safe in the knowledge that no matter what happened, Nick would be there to support me. And I would say that really has been the secret of my success. It's made it enjoyable. And that That is is what, you know, when we talk about makes me happy, that's what makes me happy.
0: That is lovely. And she'll be so proud hearing that as well. And she's a better woman than I am because I'd have outsourced the shirt ironing (laughs) every day of the week. (laughs) So well done, Nick. But no, what you were saying before about her making sure that you get out of bed and do the things because she knows you inside out is amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something that, you know, other people might struggle with in terms of going and finding that perfect partner because, you know, sadly it doesn't happen for everyone. But I think, you know, what you were saying about making the most of every minute and making sure that when you get up on a Monday morning, you're happy in the work that you're doing, all of those things are such positive takeaways that people will be able to think about and see whether they can incorporate so
1: but I did just so, so that but even meeting Nick and, and there's an element of luck to that obviously but it was also le- learning from your mistakes so I, I actually yeah. learned from what was wrong with my first marriage and and it was a tough conversation with Nick was these are the things that didn't work if you're going to do them we probably don't want to continue
0: <laughs> you have a checklist <laughs>
1: Pretty much. Everything has a checklist. It's the standing joke in my family that whether, whether I'm buying something or doing anything new, there is a checklist.
0: I totally uh, and, agree though. I always yeah. say that people could have two marriages. I've had two marriages. The second one is so much better than the first one. So yeah, I think you're right. You learn from the first one what you don't want and then you can set it up for success the second time.
1: Doesn't mean you're going to find it. Uh, and, and people aren't always truthful and honest, but Nick is. So uh, um. And, you know, do you know what? It's not perfect. You know, we have our challenges, but actually the good bits outweigh the bad bits 100 to 1. And therefore, you know, we we have no problem living with that. And I'm sure I'm much harder to live with the nickers with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Dean, 14 years, man, and we have just caught up. It's been a pleasure. I could talk to you all day. You're a fascinating storyteller. So thank you for being so open and honest and for sharing everything so wonderfully. And let's not leave it 14 years until we catch up again.
1: And thank you for listening. Appreciate it.
0: I do hope that you enjoyed listening to the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. If you did, be sure to check out the show notes to access all of those important links. For more about me, visit my website at www.angela-cox.co.uk. Now I'd really love it if you could subscribe to our channel so that you never miss an episode and do leave us a five-star review because it really helps us to get noticed. Bye for now, I do hope that you'll tune in next week and take good care.